Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Thomas Moynihan, a researcher and writer from the United Kingdom who focuses on the history of ideas. Currently, his research looks at the historical development of ideas surrounding human extinction, existential risk, and the long-term potential of our species. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Thomas, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems you're trying to solve. Mm, yeah, so uh, so I call myself a historian of ideas, um, which might take some people a surprise. A lot of people I speak to haven't actually heard that that's a thing that people do. Right. Um, but nonetheless, it is. Uh, so the way I often like to think about it is, you know, in the same way that technologies need to be invented and discovered um so too do ideas uh because the way in which we interact with the world you know the way we decide on what is the right thing to do uh, what the best thing to do is is only with the right ideas so the development of ideas across time is very important for practical reasons um and so one of the things that's always really interested me is uh large-scale shifts in worldview uh, and these can be very subtle. So, you know, the most famous ones and the ones that people often talk about the most, uh, are probably things like the Copernican revolution. So that's when, uh, around 400 years ago, 500 years ago, people started to discuss the idea that the sun actually, uh, doesn't go around the earth. In fact, it's the other way around. So that's the kind of, you know, that's a big, uh, paradigm shift, uh, revolution in worldview. Uh, other ones that we talk about a lot are um, Darwin's um, Darwin's theory of natural selection. That very much changed the way that we think about ourselves and our place within the wider universe. So these th these kind of shifts uh, have always interested me uh, because I see them as deeply practical as well. Uh, the more we know about the world, the more we know about how best to fit what we want into the world, uh, how to make the world a better place. Um, so. Anyway, that is all to say that the, the, this shift in worldview that I've um, worked on and I would like to argue for, and it's one that I feel has been um, undervalued and underappreciated uh, thus far. Um, I feel that people haven't necessarily noticed it for how important it is and how clean and crisp uh, this shift is and has been, is uh, the discovery that the human species itself can go extinct. Uh, this was an idea that, say, let's rewind a thousand years, uh, people wouldn't have been able to uh, think about. Um, that might seem surprising at first, but uh, hopefully we can, you know, uh, go through that development and, um, uh, you know, demonstrate to people how um, 
you know, this is actually the, the very idea that humanity could go extinct is in itself a modern invention. Um, and so, yeah, that's what my work has focused on is saying, look, there was a point in time when people couldn't think about human extinction. Uh, now they can. And that's something like uh, a discovery that happened, say, 200 to 300 years ago. Um, but it's even more recently, perhaps in the past 50 years, maybe even less, uh, that um, people in academic institutions, philosophers, ethicists, scientists, have really started working on the issue seriously. Um, so the question of, you know, why now? Why not earlier? Uh, and what are the causes behind this? Uh, and why is it as important as I claim it is? These are all the questions that have been occupying me and uh, my research for the past um uh, it's coming up to about a decade now. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I've been working on. Well, those questions are going to occupy you for much of this interview as well. But I, I first wanted to get your opinion just as a historian of ideas on the mechanisms by which these revolutions take place, because I'm similarly very fascinated by that sea change, that shift. And one example that I, I sometimes see referenced and that I'm also, uh, I, I would also like to see studied is how the world transformed from taking slavery for granted to pretty much universally uh, uh, excoriating it in like a hundred years. I mean, for almost all of human history, it was just taken for granted that you have slave castes, you have uh, people who are only fit for this kind of work. And now that would be abhorrent. And the shift took a relatively small amount of time. And so I'm sort of curious as to whether you or anyone you know have looked at these mechanisms or what's required for a moral revolution of that kind to take place. Mm, yeah, yeah. So I find that a particularly interesting question. Um, and this, again, is why I think that uh, putting these things into historical relief is is useful, is uh, it's by taking stock of the progress that we've made. And that is a very clear uh, example of moral progress, right. probably one of the most uh, one of the most um, uh, clean and uh, indisputable ones. Um it's putting that into relief, taking stock of that, that we realize kind of how far we've come, uh, which is also, which is almost easy to forget if you don't know that, as you say, for the vast majority of human history, slavery was taken for granted as just part of the way the world worked. Right. Um, if you don't have that fact in your mind, you also aren't really going to have a good idea of, you know, how far we've come and therefore a good idea of our potential going forwards. Um, but to answer your question on, the mechanisms and the dynamics behind this, um, they are, they are myriad. Um, so some of the most obvious ones, uh, are, um, material changes. So these are often wrought by, uh, technological inventions, um, or, uh, developments in, um, political organization. Uh, so these quite material, um, developments have in the past often facilitated vast changes. But then there are also, and this is what I would be interested in as a historian of ideas, there are actually um, instances where it's just new thinking. So often the new thinking is caused by material changes, but uh, you know there's a feedback loop between these two things. But there are some, again, quite clean instances of new thinking. Um, and so, oh, sorry. One of the things I talk about quite a bit is the way the internet has increased our awareness of the world. And so, um, as an example, something um, should can actually go from just a, a single idea to covering the entire world in a matter of days now. And in the past, that would take months or years to do that. 
Um, uh, it's a recent example of the idea of, of non-fungible tokens, NFTs, <laughs> which I had never heard about a month ago, and all of a sudden it's all over the news right now. Um, that could have never happened, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, I, I find that to be a, a specific mechanism that's actually pushing things around the world. Is that what you're finding as well? Yeah, well, I think uh, over the long span, uh, the ability to um, create changes in ideas has sped up, you know, um, uh, probably at something equating to some kind of ex exponential rate. So, you know, you go back to the printing press. That was a vast, you know, gear shift in the speed with which ideas could develop and be sifted through, uh, you know, and then you see a similar thing happen again with kind of the development of, uh, you know, the kind of culture of the image um, with TV, um, and then yes, the internet is another kind of uh, another gear shift again. So I, yeah, I, I definitely think that um, our very ability to um, uh, to sift through discourse and you know create new ideas is is definitely speeding up for better and worse because obviously there are detrimental effects of that as well. Right. Um, so people you know talk of info hazards and the the ability for bad ideas to spread and lock in um, is facilitated by that as well. But nonetheless, um, yes, I think you know uh, it's often the media in which we consume these ideas and uh, petition them and put them up for debate. Uh, that's very important in um, in shifts in worldview. So, uh, for example, going back to what I just mentioned, the printing press, you know, this is just, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, this is bread and butter for historians uh, is, you know, the development of the printing press just created this efflorescence, this kind of explosion of new thinking. Um, and I think we're going through a similar thing right now uh, when it comes to the internet. So, um, you know, again, to go back to this point of uh, there being risks involved in this, uh, you know, the development of the printing press caused one of the longest wars in Europe, um, right. a lot of social turmoil. They could afford that back then because they didn't have uh, weapons of mass destruction. Um, you know, obviously it caused lots of suffering and pain and uh, wasted resource. Uh, but we're in a different world now. So I think, um, yeah, that's an interesting thing to be thinking about. Um but yeah, I, I'm interested in, um, you know, these kind of uh, points where you can really point to there being uh, new types of thinking that develop. Um, and so um, one of the major things I'm interested in is um, the development of uh, ways of thinking that see past the kind of biases uh, that are kind of baked into the human psychology. Um, so, um, one of the main things that I look at in my work is, uh, you know, you go back to, uh, pre-modern worldviews, be they pagan, uh, medieval Christian, um, and there's a tendency for something that I kind of think of as wishful thinking. Um, so what I mean by that is this kind of tendency to, um, presume that the world works in ways that we would find nice, uh, ahead of evidence. Um, so this is one of the reasons why people didn't actually even consider the possibility of extinction because extinction is obviously a horrible tragedy. Right. Um, it's not just, uh, immoral. It's the end of human morality in a sense. 
And so this was just something that didn't occur to the pre-modern mind. Um, and so what I'm interested in is this process of, uh, you know, um, breaking the spell of wishful thinking and how that happened. Uh, part of modernity is the ability to uh, search for the facts of the world in a sober um, disillusioned sense where we're not letting what we want the world to be like to contaminate our views of how the world actually is. Uh, so that's a key fundamental um, that I see as being part of the development of ideas. I, I want to get back to what took so long for people to get there. But first, we, we need to clarify what I think will be a, an obvious question that comes up. It's So your most recent book is X Risk, How Humanity Discovered Its Own Extinction. And it's not about existential risks from artificial intelligence or from, you know, gray goo or from an asteroid or a, a gamma ray burst. It's, it's about the idea of existential risk, the idea that all humanity could cease to exist. And, you know, earlier in the show, in your introduction, you, you claimed that this is a relatively new concept, which seems kind of remarkable, given that we have stories about the end of the world in the oldest surviving myths. Like w when people started writing stuff down, one of the first things they wrote down was, was about how it all could go wrong. So what makes those eschatological tales different from the concept of existential risk as we understand it today? Mm, yeah, yeah. So um, there are different ways, there are lots of different ways of putting this. Um, uh, so, and this is one of the major things that actually got me onto the topic to kind of answer one of your earlier questions is, um, you know, I noticed that there were tons and tons of books on the history of the end of the world, the history of apocalypse, of millennium, uh, and they would often kind of blur together, um, if they did bring it forward into the present day, they would often blur together, um, you know, present day fears, uh, be it of, you know, thermonuclear destruction or more recently, these scenarios you mentioned like great goo or, uh, artificial general intelligence, they would kind of blur them into this kind of big grab bag of humans thinking about the end of the world, which humans have been doing probably since humans first began to talk and tell stories to each other. Right. Um, because obviously a story is something with a beginning, a middle and end. So in a sense, it's so natural uh, for us to tell stories about the end of all things. Uh, again, it's, you know, to kind of go back to a phrase I used earlier, it seems to be something that's baked into human psychology. Um, so I noticed that there are all these books on, you know, uh, the history of thinking about the end of all things forever. And you might get this reference to, oh, of course, you know, thinking about Cold War uh, fears of the end of the world is just the newer version of this. And I thought this is strange because there's something clearly new going on, uh, talking about human extinction, where every single member of the human species disappears, but the, the world, the earth, perhaps the biosphere continues without us there's no kind of uh, pomp and circumstance there's no right. kind of you know uh, fanfare for our end the world continues um you know unnoticing right there's something new in that idea so i thought well why hasn't anyone told this story of when people really started thinking about the end of the human species in this sense and so when I start to think about this distinction, I think it can be put down to the fact that uh, the apocalyptic um, tradition in religion or mythology um, tends to think of the end of all things as inherently having a sense of narrative justice about it. Uh, so often, um, and so let's zoom in on the Christian judgment day. Right. Uh, 
you can see how there's a sense of narrative justice there because it is just the revelation of justice. It's the revelation of the moral order of things. Uh, you know, in some versions, it's, uh, you know, um, basically it's how things should be is revealed at the end of the world. You know, right. the good souls are sorted from the bad souls. And even though that justice, that uh, kind of tribunal uh, might be inscrutable to us mere mortals, we can rest assured that it's still the way that things ought to be. So regardless of what happens, regardless of our own personal uh, tribulations and travails, uh, the end of all things will still be in some sense, morally ordered. Uh, whereas in this modern idea of human extinction, it's not uh, a revelation of justice or um, a sense of how things ought to be. It's the end of the human sense of ought or should. Uh, it's the end of morality in that sense. Um, and so uh, it, another thing is that um, often in these traditions, the pre-modern traditions of Apocalypse uh, and Doomsday, Armageddon, uh, the world either ends with humanity um, or it's part of a cycle of uh, destructions and recreations. Um, so these are these very new ways of thinking about the end of all things. Uh, one of the, the, the kind of pithy way that I like to express it is where Apocalypse uh, secures a sense of an ending uh, so the sense of narrative justice, um, extinction is just the ending of sense. Uh, so it's in a sense kind of the permanent frustration within a physical cosmos of uh, human desires, uh, human sense of justice, the way we want things to end in the sense of ends that we seek. Um, so, you know, there's, there is a clean distinction uh, here. Um, and yeah, I felt that no one had actually kind of really fully explored how that came to be. So as you're talking through this, it reminds me of uh, several years ago, I took a course in gerontology and I thought, wow, what a depressing course. It teaches you how your body ages and it all goes to hell later on in life. And and <clears throat> so as you're, as you're working on human extinction, is this depressing for you? Um, uh, and do you find yourself kind of falling into the camp of a fatalist? <laughs> um, absolutely not. Uh, it's, it's, it's completely the opposite. So I went into this topic probably more of a fatalist, actually definitely far more of a fatalist than I've come out of it. Um, because like I said earlier, you know, it's, it's understanding the facts of the world allows us to fit our values and our desires and our moral wishes into it better. Uh, you know, if you don't know the facts of things, how things work, then you can't actually leverage them to create what you want. So an important part of humans interacting with the world uh, is understanding the risks uh, at the larger scale um, that face us. So I like to couch this discovery of the idea of human extinction as actually, um, in a sense, a kind of... Um, you know, I've, I've spoken to people and they've said it's like a kind of Santa isn't real moment. Uh, you know, a part, you know, kind of part of growing up, so to speak, um, where obviously that's in a sense, you know, realizing that a cherished idea of comfort or safety within the cosmos, really realizing that that is actually mistaken is in a sense alienating and disturbing. And it was for many people. And I think it still is in a sense. But 
it's actually uh, allows us to decide better, you know, how to navigate the world. Um, knowing what's at stake is what actually motivates us to uh, do the right thing, I think. So even though it's actually a, um, yeah, an alienating or a disturbing realization for people to come to, I think it's actually empowering because, you know, again, it's knowing what's at stake is what motivates us. And Another way I like to put it is that without risk, there is no real sense of responsibility. And I think responsibility is what makes um, partly what makes life meaningful in a sense. So what were the antecedent concepts which had to be discovered before it was possible to conceptualize existential risk? Mm, yeah, so um, so there are lots of them. Um and there are some empirical discoveries, for example, like the fact that previous species before uh, in prehistory had themselves gone extinct. Um, that's quite a obvious empirical uh, discovery. But then there are other ones that are wider kind of theory shift. So our theory of the world. Um, so going back to what I was saying earlier uh, in, you know, the kind of pagan mindset and the Christian medieval mindset, um, there was this kind of tendency for wishful thinking. So uh, often people would presume that um, the world be independently of us is kind of just maximally populated with valuable things. Um, so people kind of talk about this as the enchanted, the enchantment of the world, uh, as opposed to its disenchantment in modernity. Um, and so what I mean by this is, uh, and a, a way that I like to express this is, uh, you think of the, um, pre-Copernican model of the cosmos. So it's the Ptolemaic cosmology, and it's this idea of nested spheres with the earth in the center and God inhabits the outermost sphere. And the way that people often thought about this was that there was a hierarchy of angels in all the spheres. So there's, you know, Basically, every part of the cosmos was inhabited by angels. And then in the center in Earth, there was humans. And then in the center of the Earth, there was hell, which was inhabited by disvaluable demons, but still inhabited by something. Even if it's bad, it's still a, you know, a morally agent, a, a, a morally agentful thing. Right. Um, there's no space in that cosmos that isn't inhabited by anything morally meaningful. There's no kind of uh, void of, uh, of, of kind of uh, value or disvalue. Right. Um, and then when the Copernican revolution kind of swings around, uh, the scientific revolution kicks in, um, you get this change in the, sh in the way that people think of the cosmos. You get something that's more recognizably like how we think of it now as, you know, this kind of vast space where Earth is nowhere, kind of nowhere central. Um, a lot of it is void. And you might think that that instantly made people feel a lot more fragile, a lot more um, open to these kind of large natural risks. But that wasn't the case. This kind of confidence and this wishful thinking uh, continued. There was a kind of inertia behind it. Um, and so basically, this same intuition that the medieval world had, and so did the pagan one, that um, basically... Uh, if somewhere could be populated with something valuable, it probably would be because it would be a waste. Otherwise, it would be a waste of space, of real estate. Uh, people continue to be, think very strongly that this was just the way things are. So uh, another way of putting this is uh, it's kind of a default often of the human mind to assume that a place in the cosmos is hospitable or populated ahead of evidence to the contrary. 
So where I'm leading with all this is uh, for the early kind of uh, early modern epoch. So the kind of um, period around the, the scientific revolution. So this is kind of 1600s, 1700s in the early enlightenment people presumed that the whole of space was uh, occupied. So all these other planets had other beings on them that were doing valuable things. And basically a lot of people were quite explicit about the fact that they were essentially humanoid. Uh, so people thought that the whole of space was populated with uh, humans or things that were kind of uh, equivalent to us or just as valuable. It took a long time for people to realize that ahead of evidence, we can't be confident about that, that it might actually be the case that life and intelligent life more so is incredibly rare. That was a very long process that took, you know, kind of uh, 500 years after the scientific revolution to really kind of um, kick in. Um, and so it was a lot later when people kind of really started to think, hang on, this cosmos we live in might not be filled with humanoids, might not be filled with things that uh, we'd recognize as being kind of um, other intelligent beings that we started to feel very precarious and fragile. And that's when basically the ideas around extinction and the fact that it might actually be a very tragic event uh, really start to kick in. Um, so it kind of required this, you know, not just these empirical discoveries of previous species extinctions, you know, it also required this wider scale theory shift of just the way we think about the world, uh, the universe in which we live. Um, it required breaking the spell of that wishful thinking before we could even begin to think of it as the tragedy that makes it meaningful and makes us want to actually, if we can, do things to mitigate against it. So it occurs to me that... Um that probably Copernicus was sitting around a bar one night and he overheard these two guys totally wasted in the corner, uh, you know, drinking another uh, glass of ale saying, oh, I'll bet that sun doesn't, doesn't uh, go around the earth. I'll bet the earth goes around the sun. And then he picked up on that. So we're probably able to trace the idea to Copernicus, but the, the real uh, brainstorm took place in these these drunken two guys that are in the corner of the bar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I, I'm I'm wondering, um, yeah, kind of how you know we're we're now in a kind of a transition where we're allowing other things into our our world other than than alcohol. We're allowing cannabis and. And we're, we come from Colorado, so we have a higher percentage of donors in most places. <laughs> so do the number of ideas increase or decrease in that type of environment? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, yeah, what you say could be, uh, could be true. I mean, people, the idea of plur plurality of worlds, so there being other places out there that could be populated, uh, is, is actually a really ancient idea. Uh, it goes back way before Copernicus, so, you know. Uh, the, some of the ancient Greeks, uh, some of the Romans, they they were they liked this idea, but it what it wasn't it very much wasn't expressed in the sense of, you know, the stars we see in the sky. Each one of them is a sun like our own, and it has you know terrestrial planets circling around it. It was often far more kind of metaphysical and uh, ambiguous about what they meant. Um, but in the in the century before Copernicus, there were people that were beginning to play around with this idea. So one of them is Giordano Bruno, uh, who was burned as heretic. And uh, he was one of the first people, as far as I'm aware, to really say, 
those stars are suns like our own that might have uh, planets revolving around them. Um, and he th- he came up with this idea for kind of um, religious metaphysical reasons way ahead of any kind of, uh, you know, um, any kind of scientific evidence that was later supplied by uh, these uh, mathematician cosmologists like Kepler and um, Copernicus. So often our ideas, ideas appear before they get the kind of, um, you know, that kind of evidential base to make them uh, convincing. Uh, so it could have been could have been overheard in a bar. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there are heliocentric models of the the solar system that go back to the Hellenistic period. I believe Aristarchus had one, and uh, mm. the the record of his reasoning is lost. But we we know that he reached that conclusion and had some some set of ideas for believing that. Mm, yeah, I, I came across a really interesting thing the other day. Is uh, Archimedes has a text called the Sandrachna, and he picks up on Aristarchus's model of the universe um because he wants to re- he wants to figure out uh how many grains of sand we could fill the whole universe with so he picks up on this heliocentric model uh has a has a shot at a guess of how big the volume of the, the known universe is back then and then figures out how many grains of sand you could fill it with <laughs> this was before netflix i guess you just there's only so many ways to kill an afternoon and in uh, first century Greece or whatever it was. Uh, so if I may attempt a summary, it sounds like part of the block to understanding existential risk was the fact that prior models of the universe presupposed a kind of enchantment that it, a God or Atman or the world so w- would not create a void that wasn't populated by moral agents because such a thing would be kind of wasteful and that over time, things like the Copernican Revolution, the Darwinian Revolution sort of chipped away at this until there was a cleaving between the universe and the the human mind. And that if we want to properly enchant the universe, we have to understand and reckon with this fact and account mm. for the risks involved to humanity and mitigate them in various ways. I mean, is, is that kind of a good summary of what we've said so mm. far? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, I like how you... Uh, pick up on the idea that if we, you know, if we want to enchant the universe, uh, you know, we, we might want to use different terminology now, but I like kind of reusing old historical words. So I like that. But if we want to enchant the universe, live in a universe that is, uh, populated with, uh, valuable things, regardless of what you think that might be. And I, I think we don't really know yet. Uh, there's a lot of moral uncertainty, right? Yeah. Uh, but if we do want that, if we want the most optimal, uh, universe, because basically, what I'm saying—a negative way of saying what I, the, the the story that I just kind of uh, recounted in its basic liniments—the negative way of saying it is that we've realized over time that we live in a universe, a cosmos, however you want to put it, that has is basically in a very non-optimal state of the amount of valuable value that could be in it. Uh, it's vastly empty. It's probably. Um, you know, largely uh, uninhabited. It could be the case that the nearest uh, kind of extraterrestrial intelligence to us is so far away as to be basically beyond our effectable reach. Um, You know, the universe is far vaster than we used to think it was even, you know, 200 years ago. Um, You know, we realize that it's in a very, it's very underutilized basically. Uh, So if we want to enchant it, uh, make it most optimal, uh, it's actually up to us. It's not something that uh, is going to be the case independently of us. And so, yes, definitely, that's um, the block. That was the obstruction is uh, that 
uh, most uh, the, the the general tone of thinking, and often that you can find exceptions to this, but the general tone of thinking uh, prior to a certain period of time in the West is that yes, the world is basically enchanted and optimally utilized, and uh, all of its resources being used in the right way uh, economically however you want to think about it, independently of our actions. Uh, so that's why this risk and responsibility thing comes in because, um, and this is another interesting point, is people started thinking about human extinction um, as a kind of naturalistic possibility in this you know, desacralized universe. Sometime in the late enlightenment, um, they started to take it seriously. Some people even started to recognize that it would be a unique moral tragedy um, but nonetheless, there wasn't really like clean thinking about just how bad it would be uh, until very recently. Um, so this has only really kind of built uh, momentum. I would say, you know, since since the Cold War, obviously during the Cold War, there's a lot of discussion about um, how bad the worst case outcome would be. Um, but it's kind of only since the 80s and uh, even since the 2000s that people have really started to kind of quantify just how bad it could be. And that's based on our potential. It's not based on what humanity, uh, it's not entirely based, I should say, on what humanity currently is or has already achieved. It's based on what we could do. We have to take that into account as well, because when someone dies, an individual dies, the tragedy is also based on the potential lost, right? Um, that's one of the things that makes it so upsetting when a loved one dies is that, you know, uh, you don't just think about, you know, kind of the fact that they might have, um, experienced suffering or that they've, that, you know, the work that they'd already achieved is somehow, um, denuded by it. You think about all of the brilliant th experiences that you could have had with them or they, you know, the brilliant things they could have achieved. It's the same with the human race. It's all based on our potential and, um, I think it's, yeah, it's far more recently that all of these ideas have really started to gel together and people have started to think, you know, there's actually a huge future ahead of humanity if we get things right. Uh, so we have to take this, we have to factor this in as well when we think about just how bad that frustration, the frustration of that potential that is our extinction would really be. Yeah. So let's, st let's stick with that. So Derek Parfit has his famous uh, thought experiment in which he asks where there is a larger gap, would it be between peace and a war that kills 99% of all life on earth or all human life on earth? Or would it be between that war and a war that kills a hundred percent of all life? And most people intuitively say the bigger gap is between peace and the 99% war. But his idea is that, no, it's between the 99% and the 100% war because that forecloses all possibility of realizing any value in the future. So I guess starting with that as a jumping off point, could you riff a little bit on your claim that human extinction would represent a unique tragedy? Mm, yeah, so this is... Um I think Derek Parfit. So he 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 um, argued this in the eighties uh, in his uh, it's this kind of masterwork of uh, ethical philosophy, uh, reasons and persons. Mm -hmm. um, it's really the first place that that was very very clearly uh, and um, you know explicitly formulated. Um, you do find precursors. So uh, around the same time, uh, and again thinking in the context of the Cold War. Um, uh, Jonathan Shell, he wrote a book called The Fate of the Earth and makes this similar point that uh, 
human extinction wouldn't just be the loss of all the currently living souls, um, which obviously would be a humongous tragedy, worse than any in human history before, by definition. Um, you know, however many billion souls are currently living would disappear. It's not just that, it's also the loss of all of the future generations. And so we have to take that into account. Um, and so when Parfit argues this in Reasons and Persons, he points out that uh, the earth is habitable for, you know, I, I can't remember the figure that he gives, but it's something like, you know, a billion years more, right? Um, when you think about uh, the history that we already have, um, you know, humans uh, have, you know, humans in the sense of humans that talk and discuss things and have culture have existed for something like 50,000 to 70,000 years. Uh, civilizations uh, have only existed in the past 6,000 or so. That's a sliver compared to that future habitability of the Earth that's left. Uh, and more recently, um, with the work of uh, people like Nick Bostrom and Toby Ord, who kind of take this even further, they say, what are the kind of upper bounds of potential? Uh, and that's potentially uh, there's no you know kind of no reason to limit that to the earth uh, if humanity becomes spacefaring in the future uh, there are you know there's a vast amount of cosmos that we could reach and do right. good things within so you know the potential is potentially huge right. um, and you have to you have to factor this in um, and yeah you know you find diffuse ideas like this uh, you know like kind of around 1800 when people first started thinking of extinction as a tragedy you get people so i found say emmanuel kant for example saying that humanity has this huge potential uh for perfection and if we don't fulfill it this is potentially the worst thing uh imaginable is this kind of frustrated potential um a bit later when people are really kind of getting a grip on how big the future could be um so I'm thinking around 1900 when, you know, the kind of the first like uh, we, we're gaining accuracy on the, the kind of idea of the future window of habitability of planet Earth. Uh, there's a physicist, uh, James Jeans, and he makes this point that his figure was, you know, again, something like a billion years left of, uh, you know, habitability on Earth. Um, he said, you know, the future ahead of us is ginormous. And right. the lesson that we should learn from this is one of responsibility. So, you know, these pieces of the argument are clinking together, converging over time. But yeah, it was kind of really only with Parfit in the 80s that you get this really clear um, argument for why, you know, like you say, that um, the distinction between 99% and 100% fatality is, in a sense, way worse right. than between yeah. peace and 99. So some of the research I've done in the past is on uh, this this idea of the the anatomy of an epiphany. And uh, in, in the world where we're we're trying to create new startups and new products and new devices, um, uh, the idea of an epiphany, uh, how quickly can it take off? And, and it's in our best interest to create more epiphanies because that's where all of the new startups come from. That's where all the new products come from. And, and so with the research that you've done, it occurs to me that you, you kind of understand this from a, a much more interesting um, inner, inner view of an epiphany in that uh, if you were going to create a meme today that was going to go global, 
um, like over the next week here, how would you go about doing it? I mean, have you have you got your finger on the pulse of uh, epiphanies here? <laughs> That's a hard question. Um, Look, I mean, could, could, I, could, could I flesh that yeah, out a little bit? Because actually, I had a standalone question that was similar to that, and I didn't ask it. Now I'm kind of glad that I didn't because I can work it in with what Thomas just said. Yeah, so I've also you know read pop treatments of how ideas develop over time, like Stephen Johnson's Where Good Ideas Come From and his concept of the slow hunch and Stuart Kaufman's idea of the adjacent possible. Um, and it seems to me like there are at least two elements at play in most of these things. And sometimes you just have to have a vanguard insight, which unlocks a whole new realm of conceptual space. And sometimes I call this the the air has parts idea. So you have to understand that air has parts before you even before it even occurs to you to try to do chemical experiments, which take it apart and, and understand the different constituent pieces of it and that some mixtures aren't suitable for humans and some are. Um, and, and that sometimes you have to have cognitive scaffolding. You have to have some way of thinking thoughts that otherwise are really hard to think. And so uh, sometimes for that, I imagine, you know, humans in the era before writing was invented. I mean, many of them would have been just as smart as any of us, but there are certain kinds of thoughts that are nearly impossible to have if you can't write some of them down and then carry that around with you so that you can think other thoughts that are built on prior thoughts. So, yeah, I guess that's just sort of a roundabout way of, of saying, yeah, where do I where do ideas come from? Like, how do epiphanies form? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I think that um, uh, so yeah, big big question. So I'll try and I'll try and try and uh, crunch it down and tackle it in pieces. Um, so uh, often epiphanies, I think. Um, it's something that gains, gives us more leverage, uh, gives us more structure to um, what we want. So the interesting thing with this epiphany that we're talking about here, this you know pathfit one that's been developed since by uh, researchers in existential risk, um, is that it gives a structure to uh, very very bad um, outcomes. So. Um, we have this, you know, we have certain biases. Uh, you know, I think one of the ways of putting it is scope neglect, where right. uh, when, you know, the huge numbers, kind of inconceivable numbers, we just fail to really realize the distinction between them, even though the distinctions themselves are huge. Right. Uh, so kind of global fatalities is one of those where uh, you think about the 99% or even, you know, 90% fatality situation, um, and the mind kind of staggers and uh, is knocked back and just thinks, oh, this is so bad. That when you're offered then the 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 kind of 100% scenario, you know, we're doing scope neglect there and we kind of fail. Our intuitions are quite bad in the in in this vicinity. So like someone actually kind of, um, someone actually spelling out that there is a structure to these and he, here are the reasons why. That's a really powerful gain in... Um, kind of leverage on our thinking in these situations. Um, so another one that I think of is uh, with a similar similar kind of thing is that um, both in terms of the past and the future, realizing that they're huge but finite. Right. So thinking about enormous finitudes uh, is really important. So people... Um, say before um before 1800s uh would often just people kind of working in that uh, what we now think of as the earth sciences um 
would think that the past was so huge that it's as good as eternal or infinite. Um, so, you know, some people, often the kind of more theistic uh, geologists or scientists would love a creation narrative that puts a clean start date at 6,000 years ago. That was the kind of orthodox num number for the age of the earth. Right. Um, but there's an attraction in thinking that, uh, you know, the, if the past is huge, it's basically as good as eternal. And the same with the future. Um, now, that's important for certain reasons, um, one of them being that if the past is truly eternal, then everything that we're doing right now will have already happened in it. Right. And if the future is eternal, it'll happen again, which kind of takes the sting out of the irreversibility of extinction. Uh, so, you know, people, re people, well, the consensus was built uh, some point in the 1800s around the fact that the Earth's past is finite. There is this end stop on uh, the past history of the Earth. Uh, with the kind of consolidation of Big Bang cosmology in the 1900s, the mid 1900s, uh, you get an end stop on the past, you know, past time of the universe itself. Um, similar things with the future of the universe. So, uh, you know, people are kind of, uh, you know, the, 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 there's a consensus around the idea that you know it can't go on forever in the sense that it does now. Um, so those things, again, even though they seem so abstract. Um, so kind of beyond our everyday lives, they really affect our kind of moral decisions in a sense, because if the universe was eternal and infinite, then we couldn't actually do anything to make it better because, uh, the opposite of that action would take place somewhere else or some other time inevitably. So yeah. everything would be canceled out from the perspective of the whole. It's kind of a paralyzing, um, uh, idea, right? Um, so this to, to kind of come back to Thomas's question, um, I think that uh, the really powerful ideas are the ones that kind of give this wide scale structure to our decision making within the world. Now, uh, there are issues is that, you know, creating memes or ideas that spread very well, the truth value of those ideas is not the only thing that makes ideas spread well. So, um, you know, there's you don't say often... <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's other things like kind of appeal to aesthetic sensibilities or just kind of, there's a fitness landscape of the human mind. You know, our psychology, our kind of natural folk psychology, there's a fitness landscape and memes kind of inhabit that. And uh, truth is only one of the factors that makes an idea attractive. Um, and historically speaking, is a, in a sense um, truth in a, the very uh, the very kind of um, abstract, um, you know, delocalized uh, theoretical idea of scientific truth is a very new idea uh, based on institutions that emerged in 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 in, in Europe around five hundred years ago or so. Um, so I think we need to um, we need a better understanding of this fitness landscape of the human mind uh, and the competing factors that uh, you know um, might compete out truth signals, so to speak, right. um, and what might make them more um, you know more attractive uh, than truth signals, and that requires a more more of a sensitive. And this is why, again, I mean, obviously, I would say this, but this is why history and the history of ideas more so is so important. Is 
we all take for granted the facts of the scientific, the, the scientific institution, the cultural norm of truth and truth seeking. Um, but it is actually historically novel and therefore historically contingent and therefore potentially uh, fragile. So right. uh, I think, you know, these are all things uh, to consider. So I haven't answered your question of how to create the killer meme, but uh, these are some diffuse <laughs> thoughts I have about the topic. <laughs> that, that was just a long way of asking for a bigger budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, th- this is a somewhat related question, but personally, I still recall the moment when the implications of human extinction became real to me. And it was, I was probably 23. I was in South Korea. I was reading a lot of Bostrom and Less Wrong and kind of thinking through some of these issues. And it was accompanied by this image of a sun rising over a dead world in which all values and all possible values were no longer achievable. And I'm, I'm always interested when an artifact either causes or signifies a change in a culture's orientation. And I'm, I'm thinking of like the clock of the long now, which is meant to sort of foster long-term thinking in people. And I wonder if you have any ideas about how to make existential risk more psychologically and personally meaningful for people such that they would be willing to write checks to the Future of Humanity Institute or, or spend some uh, number of brain cycles sort of pondering what it would mean for everything to go away. Mm, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very good question. I think, um, so I think, uh, there's a value in, um, uh, so if you, if you, if we think back to, uh, the great popularizers of science, um, you know, Carl Sagan, Stephen Jay Gould, um, earlier than that, there's, um, an anthropologist, Lauren Isley that I'm very fond of, um, they were brilliant scientists, uh, but also capable of brilliant turns of phrase. Uh, and I think that that's actually very important is um, the ability to uh, to kind of impactfully visualize these ideas and make them, um, you know, uh, abundantly clear. Um, and so actually, you know, talk of kind of brilliant pieces of science writing, you know, Darwin himself, he was had a brilliant rhetorical um, ability. Um, and often in my sense of studying the history of uh, science is perhaps to a disturbing degree, it's the people that can argue best and have the best metaphors that sometimes beat out their opponents, um, not permanently, but, you know, creates longer lock-in of bad theories if they're couched in a very nice way. Um so, and I think that because this thinking around existential risk, as is, 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 is I pointed out, is, um, you know, thinking around existential risk as opposed to just thinking about human extinction, it might be quite bad, but maybe, you know, we can't really quantify it or measure it. Thinking about existential risk where it's like, we can actually, in a sense, quantify it and we can think about ways to mitigate it, prevent it, lessen the likelihood. Thinking about that is very novel. So we're in this kind of... Um, uh, this kind of low, there's this kind of, kind of space of opportunity. Um, and I think, yeah, we're only just beginning to see. Um, so, you know, for example, Toby Ord uh, mentioned before, he's just recent, recently released this book, The Precipice. And it's, you know, it's in a sense, one of the first um, books that expresses all of this like brilliant new novel thinking uh, that's been building, um, you know, since Nick Bostrom first kind of introduced the term existential risk. Um, it's 
expressing that to kind of groups beyond the people that are naturally inclined or, you know, kind of just uh, culture fit interested in it already. It's this, you know, brilliant act of science communication. Um, so yeah, I think we're, you know, we're at the beginning of, um, you know, these ideas being expressed to a wider public. And, uh, I think that there's, you know, um, uh, there's vast scope and there's people doing great things to communicate these ideas. And I think that, yeah, that's the thing that's important is, um, you know, for example, this Parfit, uh, section passage that we've, we've been talking about, you know, it's, it's this fantastic passage, uh, kind of worldview changing passage, right. Uh, you know, uh, that it, it appears at the end of this, you know, very long, uh, book of very dense, you know, brilliant, but very dense ethical philosophy. Right. You know, we need, you know, that, 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 that idea, you know, it's so self-encapsulated that you can, and we've kind of spoken about it here, you know, kind of extracted from the rest of his philosophy, but yeah, you know, these ideas need communication and dissemination. Um, Yeah. And that's one thing that, you know, I'm quite passionate about contributing to as well. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I feel like science popularizers often get short shrift, but if they're really good at it, like a Carl Sagan level, which is, you know, one in a million, but if, if you're that good at it, in many ways, it can kind of eclipse what your contributions to science would have been. So I think Carl Sagan, the science communicator, probably did more good for the world than Carl Sagan, the planetologist or the atmospheric scientist. Um, and for people who are working specifically in existential risk, you've got to thread this very thin needle because on the one hand you want people to grapple seriously with the idea of human extinction, but you don't want to make the scope so vast that they kind of shut down. You mentioned earlier that there's scope neglect where a person might care about a thousand birds, but if it's a billion birds, it's just too big a number and you just kind of, you don't feel that ethical weight. So that's a a very Herculean task. And I I look forward to seeing what comes out of that. Mm, Yeah. Well, again, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, cultivating, um, a sense of enormous finitudes. Uh, right. I think that's one of the core insights of, uh, existential risk research. That's one of the core things that it's, it's offered in the past, you know, um, say, you know, yeah, the first, you know, Nick Bostrom's paper, uh, first using the word existential risk, introducing it as like 2002, 2003, something like that. So, you know, you could date the, the thinking on this, uh, to the past two, two decades. Um, but yeah, I think one of the, and it it rests on lots of historical precursors and previous thinking, of course, as everything does, but yeah, one of the, the, um, the major things is, is, is enormous finitude. So cultivating thinking about that, I think is, is, is an, is an area, you know, for, of, of opportunity that people could, you know, um, go and do brilliant things in, in the same way that take Carl Sagan, for example, he cultivated, a, you know, amongst many other things, um, ways of thinking about exist- you know, extraterrestrial life, uh, in a sensible kind of sci- scientific, but nonetheless engaging and inciting, exciting way. Um, you know, I, I think, yeah, this is one of the things that, um, you know, there is a, re- there's a, there's scope for like discursive intervention. Yeah. In the past, I've uh, I've done some work with a lot of libraries, and I was I spent a lot of time about this idea of the anatomy of an idea itself. And uh, after a talk I gave at the Library of Congress in Washington D.C., it occurred to me that wow, wouldn't it be cool if we could have just kind of this 
place where we could store all the ideas, this compendium of ideas, and somehow the best ideas would rise to the top, and then we could just work with those. Um, and so I don't know if you've any uh, if you've done any work on what the component parts of are of a self-sufficient idea that uh, uh, kind of self-motivated and self-driven that uh, takes on a life of its own. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. I think I think I would say my sense is uh, is that no idea is self-sufficient. Um, all ideas are gated and dependent and hang upon all other ideas. Uh, so, and this again is one of the things I want to stress about the fragility of ideas uh, and the fragility of the institutions that undergird them um, is. Uh, they all depend on each other. So in the same way that an animal is in the way that all its parts are dependent on, on each other is in a sense, more fragile for that fact. I think uh, culture institutions, norms and knowledge itself is very fragile. Um, so, you know, I know that there, there are, uh, you know, there are kind of works of uh, yeah, knowledge arcs and things like that. I know that there's, you know, kind of uh, exciting work being done there and has been for a while, I presume. Um, but you know, that's, that is one thing I'm very interested in. Another thing is, um, say if there was a, you know, kind of collapse of civilization, um, you know, so not an extinction event, but a kind of, uh, very large collapse, um, you know, would we regain ground in any sense as quick as we did last time? I don't think we can be sure about that. Right. Um, also, would we gain, would we recover the same ground? I mean, you know, it, I think that these questions are um, open and um, very interesting ones personally, because uh, I mean, there's this, there's this question, and this is one of the things I, you know, I, part of my research of, you know, um, the history behind thinking through existential risk is um, in the same way that these kind of, you know, early modern um uh, scientists and natural philosophers would actually quite explicitly often say that the destruction of earth wouldn't really matter because humans exist everywhere else in the cosmos, you know, and I found you know, a whole bunch of people from this era saying this wow. in the same way that that was an obstruction to really thinking about the stakes involved in extinction, uh, in the early modern period, in the kind of later post Darwinian period, um, there's a kind of, um, continuation of that similar sentiment, but in the idea that if humanity was wiped out on Earth, uh, something else would kind of, you know, inevitably take up the reins uh, and become, you know, um, you know, become the apex cogitator after us, uh, which rests on this idea of this confidence in the adaptiveness uh, and the convergent um, recurring evolution and uh, development of in intelligence like ours. Uh, so, you know, one of my favorite quotes is, um, an American paleontologist, William Diller Matthew from kind of the 1920s, uh, saying that, you know, if all, uh, humans were wiped out, um, you know, maybe, uh, the weasels or the dogs would take over and become intelligent, <laughs> civilized beings. Uh, but you know, and then he goes, oh, but if all the vertebrates, uh, sorry, if all the mammals were, um, wiped out, then, uh, maybe the, the, the reptiles would kind of, uh, you know, um, create another age of Saurians, but this, this time they'd be intelligent technological Saurians. Um, Darwin himself actually said a similar thing in one of his letters to a geologist friend. He said that if the vertebrates were wiped out, uh, you know, maybe something else would 
uh, take up the reins. So, you know, this is an obstructive assumption uh, where we have this confidence that evolution would retrace the same steps should we disappear. Um, and I think the same the same um, dubiousness that we should have around that, um, you know, had very good evidence. Um, uh, we should also apply to history. So, you know, if civilization collapsed, I think we shouldn't be so confident um, to think that stuff would uh, just kind of happen again and happen in the way that we want or would be optimal. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I think that's why we should kind of think more about the resilience of our institutions and ways of kind of um, protecting them and knowledge itself. Uh, you know, like you say, if we could uh, kind of uh, create really resilient ways. I mean, I know that there's a, there's an artist. I forget. I forget the name. There's an artist who kind of encoded the whole of Wikipedia into the junk portions of the DNA of an apple. Uh, so right, <laughs> there is an right. apple. There is an apple of knowledge out there. But you know, if, I think there are interesting ways of thinking about this. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So one final question here to, to wrap this up, your day job revolves around studying the possibility of human extinction and the collapse of all values, real and potential. What gives you hope? <laughs> what gives me hope is the fact that, uh, for millennia of civilized history, uh, we couldn't even think those ideas. And now based on, based on millennia of, uh, careful hard work and contribution to intellectual culture, scientific discoveries, the way we think about the world, the way we think about how we should interact with the world, you know, uh, the work of moral philosophers, ethicists, based on that vast backdrop of, uh, human contribution and achievement, we can now think about those things. And so that gives me hope. And that's part of why I think that telling this story is useful is, uh, like I kind of, you know, uh, circling back to what I said at the beginning is taking stock, uh, of how far we've come and just being able to think about these things, um, is an important part because if we're just worrying about the risks that are hurtling down the track towards us, um, and there are risks hurtling down the track towards us. Uh, we're not seeing the whole picture uh, because we also need to, you know, like I say, take stock and realize um, how far we've come. And I think that gives us a sense, a small sense uh, of what potential we have. Um, you know, there's only one species. Uh, I'm pretty confident, <laughs> very confident, that there's only one species on planet Earth that's ever thought about its extinction. Uh, and thought that it's bad and thought that there are potentially ways of preventing it. Um, you know, and also more so has thought that the extinction of other animals is bad and should be prevented. Right. Um, you know, obviously there's a massive, massive culpability and responsibility that we hold for, you know, in a sense in shifting to be, being a high energy civilization, kind of starting another potentially mass extinction. But we are also the only species that's also ever been able to take responsibility for that fact or think that it should. So, you know, other organisms have uh, caused extinctions before, but they didn't even care or notice. So we have. So I think, you know, with again, with responsibility comes uh, a certain amount of risk and the ability to actually damage the world as much as make it better. Uh, but these two things always come together. So I think, you know, we have to have a synoptic view of what we've achieved, uh, what the risks are facing us um, and coming towards us uh, in order to have some more full sense of how we might um, overcome them and how we hopefully will flourish in the future. 
Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your perspective. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, yeah, it's been great fun. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.